You're listening to Tail Chase. I'm Nick. And Graham. What? <laughs> Crazy times, man. You mean COVID and everything? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the the world is just now starting to open up again, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah I'm bored. You're bored? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially like this time of year when there's, I mean, yeah, there's fishing. Like we were talking about this the other day on the phone. There's fishing to do, but otherwise it's pretty unpleasant mm-hmm. to be in the woods. It's humid, it's hot, kind of yucky here in Missouri. Yeah, and I, like, we're kind of in the interim right now. Turkey season's over. Mm-hmm. There's some fishing to do, but I don't have the time really right now to be doing a whole lot of that. Boating season isn't here. Yeah. And it's just like there's there's not a whole lot to do except for stuff around the house, which is fun. You know, we got to do some landscaping and stuff, which super exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is Raylan old enough to work yet? You putting him to work? Uh, he's not much help. Yeah. But he's outside with us. He likes being outside a lot, so. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that time. Yeah. Yeah. As much as I don't like the heat, especially now with my job, I'm out in it all the time. Uh-huh. I'm I'm ready for it to be a little bit warmer so we can do some of the stuff in the water and because mm-hmm. he loves going swimming and taking the boat out and all that stuff. And it's just it's a little too cold yet. Yeah. Yeah. Have you gone out and messed with your boat yet or? No. And so it's my parents' boat, the one that they just keep at the at Stockton the, or at, yeah, yeah at the lake it's not too far from us there and um then I've got another boat in my driveway that needs some work for fishing okay I've got the parts for and I've already torn it apart once last year and didn't get fixed whatever needed to be fixed well put one fire out yeah found out there's another one. Oh, okay yeah it was I won't I'll spare you the details but gotcha have you done any fishing this year I don't think so yeah, I've done a little bit yeah. down south, like in the mm-hmm. Ozarks, fishing for trout and stuff. I want to get back down to the 11 point, fish that. Yeah. I need to float it, though. I think that's going to be the ticket. I've it's got a pretty canoe. big water. We should definitely yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. The problem is it's been raining so much. Yeah, it's probably um, pretty blown out, pretty murky right now. Everything down here is blown out right now. Yeah. So, hopefully... Yeah, we'll be able to get out this season and do some fishing together. I I've, hope so. I've, I've really wanted to do a float trip for a while and have yet to be able to get together and pull that off. Um, I did go fish uh, what we call the five pounder pond. Mm-hmm. Um, mm, boy, weeks ago, um, and. Uh, it was interesting because I wasn't sure if it was going to be any good. A couple of years ago, I was out there and there was uh, like that pond turnover. Mm-hmm. I think I told you about it where like it was really hot for a few days and then there was like a pretty severe cold front. I mean, at least for summertime. And uh, I don't I don't really understand how pond turnover works. I just know that it messes it up. All the warm water at the top gets cold faster because it's at the top and so it goes to the bottom and the stuff on the bottom comes to the top and then it creates this like green film yeah on the top. i think it there's a bunch of organic matter that gets caught up in that and there's algal blooms that 
that I don't know about issues. the algal blooms, but I think it, I think it uh, cuts down on the oxygen mm-hmm. available in the water. But it, either way, for whatever reason, it kills a lot of fish. And I remember I went around the bank, and it was just littered with fish, like mm. good-sized ones too. But anyway, I fished it a few weeks ago, and it's it seems to be doing fine. There's still big bluegill in there and big bass and catfish and everything. That's cool. It so. probably could have stand to have some weeding out maybe. Yeah, I wonder if it might even... I don't know how if that selects differentially on like size or species or anything because I saw... I mean, I saw dead bluegill dead i saw all dead species but it might have actually worked for the benefit of the pond to kill off some i don't know it could have yeah i th- I thought about throwing rods in with me on the trip up here i'm yeah headed up to fairfax to get some pigeons from your dad to uh-huh. start a homer loft there where i'm at so i've got pigeons for this coming season but i was like ah there's just not enough time. By the yeah. time I get up there and get that sorted out with him, I don't want to be trying to get out before dark. I want to be able to take my time. And mm-hmm. How many pigeons are you getting? Two pairs. Oh, okay. I think is what well, I That should get you going. Do you think your loft is snake-proof? If it's not, it's going to be. Yeah, you're yeah. going to find out real quick. Yeah. Well, it should be. It's in a pretty good shed, but the it's getting older and around the bottom of the door. Oh, okay. Once I put... I had birds in it um, all through the winter mm-hmm. and didn't have any issues. But we'll once see. you have eggs in there and it's warm and yeah, well, yeah. And, and the bottom of the door because it's an older shed started to kind of rot and it's just that particle board oh. shed sheathing. Yeah, and, and Taka the bird dog that I've got, he he figured out there were birds in oh. there and he was tearing up that bottom. It's not bad, but yeah. it's bad enough where I'm like, I'm going to have to replace that particular board and okay. make it so that nothing else can slip in there. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, oh man, it's maddening trying to manage a pigeon loft in the spring and summertime with yeah. snakes because like, you, just, you know, all it takes is one hole and they'll find it. It can be in the ceiling, it can be anywhere they can just about always get to it and i hate snakes like i've always oh like ever (laughs) since i was a little kid uh i love to go down and feed the pigeons with my dad um but there were snakes down there a lot of times and i had a couple traumatizing experiences where like you would uh open the door and a big you know five foot black snake would fall down Mm -hmm. from above the door and uh like looking in a nest box you know and you see these cold black dead eyes looking back <laughs> at you yeah i remember uh going out there and, and finding a big black snake and you kind of losing it a little bit trying to get me to kill it <laughs> yeah uh, i don't like him yeah well fortunately the loft is in my backyard and the dogs are around a lot of the time mm, yeah and we do have some garter snakes that usually end up getting killed by the dogs oh okay but i haven't seen any other snakes around now doesn't necessarily mean that they're not there uh you know you don't always see them when they're there it's mm-hmm. an interesting podcast that meat eater just did um recently about um pythons in florida yeah and one of the vectors that makes them really challenging is just how invisible they are in the environment yeah 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 like you have like a one percent chance of seeing the snake that's there mm-hmm 
Yeah. Based in in that environment, obviously. And they're it's not. Different, but. I mean, they're not native at all, right? Like we no, don't no, have not this particular species of snake that they're talking about. Is are there native pythons in Florida? I don't think so. Okay, they're all like escaped pets and and, and released pets. And there's a bunch of different ones. There's uh, yeah, like listen, go listen to the podcast. It's good. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't know if they'll ever be able to solve that problem. How do you feel about this? Might be a controversial topic. How do you feel about uh, invasive species that? Well, okay, so I this I have to confess this is an original idea, but like Ranella, I've heard him use the term charismatic megafauna. Mm-hmm. How do we feel about charismatic invasive species, like wild horses and big snakes? You know, because, like, no one cares if you shoot pigeons. So, you just listed off two pretty deleterious non-natives. Yeah. Wild horses cause a lot of problems. Uh-huh. They're, I mean, I, I won't get into that because that can upset a lot of people. But, yeah, they, they cause a lot of problems uh-huh. be, because they're so protected. They're more protected than our native game species, the way that their protections are set up. Oh, really? And so, management on them is pretty well non-existent in a lot okay. of places from my do they do any like sterilization or i mean there's all kinds of techniques um that are on the table but i don't know what tools have actually been used i'm the wrong guy to ask about that i know that they there are programs for people to try and adopt wild horses and different things like that but okay i think it's uh putting a band-aid on the the very large problem they they overgraze a lot of areas they push out a lot of not uh, a lot of native species the pythons they've led to a massive decrease in small mammal populations like pretty pretty well wiped out like raccoons possums bobcats yeah like so you listed off two that are they may be charismatic to some people you know Mm -hmm. i I like looking at them too right but they do have big problems now you you throw in there something like a pheasant Mm -hmm. it's a little bit different story yeah they're pretty um from my understanding anyway pretty uh they don't have a big footprint mm-hmm. when it comes to the landscapes that they're yeah, if anything, like chuckers right if anything we it's more of a footprint trying to keep them around than it is than they actually put on the land any stress they put right. on the land so stuff like that i don't have a problem a problem with mm-hmm. um, i like jason pheasants they're they're a fun species to have around however um you know it, that's a big reason for that is because they don't have some negative impact on the environment that they're in, at mm-hmm. least that we've been able to right. discover with the science that is surrounding them. Cause there's a lot of research that goes into those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, we'd be having eradication efforts on them yeah, rather than stocking efforts in a lot of places. Right. Well, and uh, one thing about them and, and Huns, uh, Hungarian partridge is they both uh, do really well with mixed agriculture mm-hmm. and grass, you know, um, which our native grouse species can too in certain situations. Like I think the magic number they say for prairie chickens is 60% grass, 40% ag. Um, and, uh, but personally, like, I would trade all the pheasants and huns in the world to have grouse where there used to be grouse, yeah. you know? Like, 
Washington State used to have good sage grouse. Oregon used to have good sage grouse. I think the limit now in Oregon is two birds for the mm. season. Um, and uh, and we put all this, we put a lot of dollars into keeping pheasants around. And I don't know. I guess I don't know why people love them so much. Probably because they're so huntable. Like prairie chickens are hard to hunt with a shotgun and a dog. Like, you either have to be waiting for them to fly over into a field, which can be unpredictable. You don't know necessarily where they're going to come in. But, and a lot of times, unless it's early season, they don't hold for a dog point. Right. And sharp tails, I think, hold a little better, but still pretty similar situation. It's hard to get them to hold. But, uh, yeah. And I think, you know, pheasants are, they're here. Mm-hmm. They have found success in places that, make them fun to hunt. So I think that's, you know, they, they've kind of found their way into hunter's hearts because it is, you know, like you said, it is a, a very huntable species. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I, the, for the stuff that's set up shop and that's here and that we're used to seeing, mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with a lot of that being around. No, yeah. I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of the way that certain things are set up for certain animals that have, Lots of protections that basically preclude them from normal management practices. Um, I don't. I especially when we're making decisions, ecological decisions based off of emotion. Mm-hmm. You're in uh, dangerous territory. Yeah, and you're, and you're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah, yeah. I know uh, some of the western states are having problems with especially mountain lions, it sounds like, uh, overpopulating, killing pets, things like that. But uh, Yeah, well, that's that's a whole other can of worms, too. I mean, you're they're still killing mountain lions, but rather than uh, people paying for tags to do it... Oh, they're paying you're, you're government paying, hunters to mm-hmm. do it? Yeah. 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 Which, um, and that's one thing, you know, I, I get it. I, I understand that people have emotional attachments to different animals, mm-hmm. but life begets life, you yeah. know, and they're going to die just like we are. Yeah. So it just. So what do you think? Should we open up a season on peregrine falcons? I mean, I, with I shotguns. Think, no, I mean, th- there are certain restrictions that i think are in place for a reason yeah you know peregrines were in peril for a long time they're they're not uh they're not immune to outside influence i mean obviously it was a a very different situation than hunting yeah but they also don't have a lot of value Mm -hmm. in that aspect you know and it's an interesting question because there are a lot of species that are on the uh, on the list of no goes uh-huh. that are based off of emotion, yeah, or based <laughs> off of previous uh, like the feather issues. market and mm-hmm. stuff, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I wonder, well, I wonder if I wonder if raptor tastes good. Be dark meat. I've this may be an urban legend, but I've heard like people like owl really yeah okay i can't imagine there's not that much meat on a raptor just based i mean basic off of the amount 
yeah that i've seen like there's not a, a big not a meaty yeah there's not a big meaty bird because they're not doing those explosive flights yeah. it's not like a game bird yeah although i mean ducks have a big old fillet on them and they don't they don't do explosive flights but it's true i don't know what about falcon eggs would you eat a falcon egg I mean, if I was hungry enough, I guess, and I was pressed to it, maybe, but... Yeah. It just, it's... Why? Why would I? Man, okay, so speaking of We're exotic getting off eggs... getting freaking weeds here, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just my brain is now jumping from one thing to the next. So, the other day I was in this swanky little, like, hipsy, hipster uh, grocery store. Mm-hmm. They were uh, charging like some absurd amount for Caternix quail eggs. Mm. And like I've raised Caternix quail and man, if you saw the way that they live, like you would not pay a red penny for a Caternix egg. Yeah. No way. What was a dozen eggs? Two fifty or something? Yeah. Four dollars. I don't know. Somewhere but it was like six bucks for like 12 Caternix eggs, which are about that big. Uh, fourth of a chicken egg yeah. if that yeah yeah but, um, oh, people people all over the world eat strange things have you yeah. ever heard of like balut huh um i couldn't tell you how to spell it okay. i've just heard about it uh, yeah and, and seeing pictures and stuff of it i don't remember what uh country it comes from it's uh, somewhere in asia yeah and it's a fertilized duck egg yeah, yeah and yeah. they I've like seen it yeah like when I say for a lot, like it's about it's to about to pip, mm-hmm. like yeah, and people eat that, so nice and tender. Do they eat? How do they cook it? Do they boil it? Yeah, I think it's in some broth or something. Okay, I, I don't know. Yeah, pass, but yeah, it might be good. Yeah, I mean, to some people, that's probably good. I mean, yeah. eating dog is very commonplace mm-hmm. in a lot of parts of the world. Yeah, but here that would be very people very hard to sell lines. to you know mm-hmm. 99.9% of people around yeah um yeah i had uh i'd like to give it another shot but i had uh beef tongue mm. tacos one time down in new lingua. mexico huh lingua lingua uh and it was good. It was very tender meat, very flavorful and everything. But I could see, like, the bumps on it. And I just couldn't get over, like, the texture. Interesting. You know, like, the bumps on the top of your tongue? Yeah. I don't think that... I think typically that's taken off. Oh, well, it, it looked like tongue to me. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe maybe not, but a lot of the stuff that I've seen, like... They, like, peel it? Mm-hmm. Oh, and okay. I'm sure that maybe they did and that those taste buds... Are there still, huh. you know, under the top layer of yeah? Because it's like or whatever. it's very leathery. Okay, I that's one thing I'd I'd really like to try preparing Just sometime. Tongue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a delicacy in places. Yeah. Um. So. Let's let's get into kind of what we want to talk about today. Um. So the last chapter of the Selena saga thing? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, so I think we last left off with 
our last season out there in Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, that year, she killed huns and a pheasant. She knocked down a couple roosters. Um, we finished the season in Nebraska chasing sharptails, and she knocked a couple sharptails down but couldn't seal the deal. And then we came home and molted her. And uh, then I went to nursing school the following fall in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And it's an accelerated program, so it, instead of two years, uh, it's just a one-year program uh, year-round schooling. So I was doing that, and so I left her in the care of my dad for the most part and then would just come home and fly her whenever I could. Um, and then he would fly her in the time in between. And uh, when... Like, by the end of her career, I don't know. I just want to speak a little bit about, like, what she was like. She would uh, vocalize when you'd come out, and she would bait towards you to get to go. She mm-hmm. wanted to go. And so I would uh, hold out my glove, and she'd hop up to the glove. No food. And then you'd get her un- unclipped, and uh, and then she'd take the hood. No problem. And then you'd get in the truck, or no, you'd take her to the scale, and she, like, knew the routine. And um, you'd get her tail mount on, her transmitter, and her uh, leg mount. And then she knew, like, once you changed the gear out, she was it was time to step up. So she'd start, like, anticipating, you know? So mm-hmm. you'd, all you had to do was just brush her feathers on her front, and she'd step up. And then you'd get in the car, and pretty quickly I learned, like, you couldn't... Uh, I didn't want to tie her up because she'd jump off the perch because mm-hmm. she was like eager to go. Yeah. And so it got to where I just kind of let her run around in the back of my forerunner. And uh, so she would just like run around. You could call her. You could be like, Selena. And she'd like take a step. And you'd be like, Selena. And she'd take a step. It was kind of <laughs> like Marco Polo. And she knew my voice. Like she didn't necessarily respond to other people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she had the hood on, so uh, that's why she didn't just hop right up to me. But I remember uh, a lot of times she'd make her way up to the front of the car and, like, find, like, the, not the headrest of the car, but, like, basically where your shoulder sits on the car thing, and she'd come up right there and be, like, riding in the car with you, hooded. You know, she just found her way up there and was ready to go. Hmm. And uh, I remember one time going out, to check a spot to see if the Huns were in this dig and uh, coming back and I like see her in, in the through the windshield and she's sitting on the cup holder like that you know suspends out from where the vents are where the air conditioning vents are yeah and she had like found her way up there with the hood on and was just like sitting on the cup holder <laughs> in the cab um, so then you uh, you know you found a slip and again she'd be like all you had to do is brush her front and she'd step right up um and her one vice is if there was a pole a pole nearby she might go sit on it for like 30 seconds and then go take off and uh and she was pretty consistent about going downwind unless there was like no wind at all and then she'd stay with you or if you um she was very smart. Like she would uh, 
position herself according to the setup. Like she would a lot of times it seemed like position herself between the quarry. Like she could tell where I was gonna flush, mm-hmm. and she would put herself between the quarry and the nearest cover, um, or like between the ducks on the pond and the nearest pond. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, she, uh, so she would go downwind, sometimes out of sight or even out of binocular range. Um, but if you were just patient, like she'd come back and she would be, um, by her end of her second season and definitely her third season, she was like consistent at least 700 feet, I think. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't have a GPS, but I've seen a lot of birds flown to the kite and stuff. And um, I would say 700 feet minimum. And she would remount. Like, I remember one flight I felt like she went to 700 feet, stooped these hunts, put them into cover, went back up to like eight or 900 feet, flushed them again. She stooped them, put them into cover, and then went back up to like 900 or 1,100 feet and stooped them again. She remounted twice so three different pitches Mm -hmm. and just went higher each time that's awesome um and uh and she would just um i didn't have a dog so i would if i couldn't find a slip i'd go to like a likely place and just run uh and put her up and just take off running through the wheat stubble and hope that i got something up and uh and she would wait on for a long time like she would just ring once she came back she would uh go overhead and go upwind a little bit and if you didn't flush anything she'd make another circle and go a little higher and just put herself right back dead overhead and go a little higher and she'd just do that forever until i ran out of gas got tired and i'd have to bag something or call her down and uh so she was pretty pretty reliable oh she was freaking awesome and just perfect position every time i mean every time just dead overhead or um a little upwind you know and uh um you know i think i told you in previous podcasts she would retrieve stuff she'd pack her hunts to me if i was swinging the lure she'd like catch a one time she caught a vole and she brought that back to me because i (laughs) swung the lure um so she was just like oh and then when we would get done i wouldn't pick her up with food i'd just hold out my glove and she'd hop up to the glove and take the hood no problem no baits nothing wouldn't even like try to dodge it she'd just take the hood Hmm. and then we'd go home take all her gear off put her uh uh out in the weathering area and we would kind of play this little game where i would show her the block and she'd hop to the block and then I'd show her my glove and she'd hop to the glove and we would just kind of hop back and forth (laughs) and there's like no food involved and she's got a big bulging crop so like it's not like we were going to go fly or anything it was just this little game that we like to play (laughs) um and uh she was like gentle like she would uh on the ground she'd bring her food over to me and like kind of step up on my boot and like step back and step up on my boot and step back and uh not aggressive in the slightest like you could get in there and do whatever you needed to do to get her clipped up it's funny 
that she made that transition because mm-hmm. initially that's not she was pretty touchy on the ground and mm-hmm. would mantle and mm-hmm. uh, it, it's cool that that relationship developed over that time into a positive one yeah well she definitely uh mantled but she um was not aggressive in the slightest but you know at the end just and and like i said it it I started to, it started to become clear to me that mantling does not necessarily mean like aggression. You mm-hmm. know, it's not like they're necessarily going to nail you if you stick your hand in there because with her like yeah, she mantled but like she would bring the food to me and like kind of almost crawl up in my lap with it, you know. Yeah. And I still don't totally understand all that behavior, but I think it's kind of an imprinty thing. Um but yeah, so then when I came back and passed her into my dad's care, it was just a matter of getting her up and going and she was, you know, ready to hawk. You could just kind of get her to a few hundred feet on the kite to get her in decent shape and then just start hawking and she was ready to go. And pretty quickly she'd start going to a thousand feet again. Wow. And uh, so I took her. Um, my goal was to catch prairie chickens with her, um, which has like been my pipe dream for a long time. And from what I understand about guys who have flown prairie chickens on or prairie falcons on grouse is like, you need a bird. If you're going to do it with a prairie falcon, they need to be high and they need to be dead overhead and they need to come through the top of them and absolutely clock them when they hit them. Um, and you need everything stacked in your favor to be successful. And I really felt like I had the bird to do it, you know, because she was so reliable and she would be dead overhead every time. Yeah. Um, so we got her in shape and then I took her out into Kansas to hawk chickens and we, uh, I was hunting with this guy who knew where a flock was. Roughly, he knew the pasture that they liked to hang out in. And so we were sitting there and listening and watching, and we were going to watch them go into the bean field nearby. And then mm-hmm. when they went back to the grass, that's when we were going to fly them because they'll bust if you try to fly them in soybeans. And um, we could hear them talking in the grass, and I was pretty sure where I was hearing them from. So I put the spotting scope on them. And sure enough, I see a little periscope head poking <laughs> up through the grass, you know. Yeah. So I knew where they were. And so I said, okay, you stay here, and I'm going to drive around and get in position and turn the bird loose and then walk across the field towards you and use the truck as a landmark so I know the line to walk. Because, again, no dog. Mm-hmm. And this time of year, this was like around Thanksgiving, I think, um, there was a lot of duck hunting going on. And so, and there were ducks everywhere. Um, and she, uh, I turned her loose and she started going up. She got to maybe 600 feet, um, and was coming back. And, um, then she folded up and stooped on the horizon, uh, at something. I'm assuming ducks, because, like, then I heard some shotgun shots later. And, uh, then 
I thought, you know, well, dang it. So I get my telemetry off my back and start heading back to the truck. And then she came back. She was super reliable. Um, she came back and she started remounting. And this is like, again, early in the season. And so she was hanging around about 400 feet, maybe five, and still going up. And I was just walking along on my line. And, uh, she was, I was walking downwind and she was a little bit upwind, like four or 500 feet, perfect position and three grouse get up and head downwind. So it's like, I've orchestrated the perfect slip. I have a downwind flush. My bird is slightly upwind. She's plenty high, mm-hmm. not as high as I would like, but that's still plenty high to do what she needed to do. And they get up, and she comes down, and really, is if with a bird in perfect position at 400 feet, like even a prairie chicken doesn't have that much time to really get going. Mm-hmm. And so she was coming down before they even you know, really got rock and rolling. And then, uh, I think that actually they were kind of dogging it because of the move that they pulled next. But I was thinking like, here we go. Like she's going to absolutely hammer this thing. And, um, she comes down and the thing, uh, like puts the brakes on like, uh, coasts for a second. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like turns, um, you know, if she was coming in straight behind him, she'd be coming right up his butt. Well, like, he turned so that her coming straight in behind him, she was coming straight at, like, his full back. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, pulls like, up. Yeah, he, yeah. like, pulled up in mid-flight right when she was about to hit him, and she weenied out. Mm. And Pump so she, faked her. Yeah, exactly. And he even, like, looked back over his shoulder at her, like, come on and try it, you know? Yeah. And and she weenied out, and she just flicked it across the back, and then of course it torpedoed out, mm-hmm. and and you know blew her doors off right away. Yeah, they're a lot faster in a straight line. With yeah, their acceleration is unreal. Yeah, um, and she you know obviously like she lost the intimidation match there. Yeah, and that was um, I think she was seven hundred and fifteen grams which was like huge for her. Um, and I, for the first time, and I felt bad about this later for the first time, like felt like she didn't do what I asked her to do. You know, like I'd flown her in a lot of wind. I'd flown her on rooster pheasants. Um, you know, and for the first time I like felt like I did my part and she didn't, come through and i was kind of you know disappointed you know in yeah. my bird which like it's it's not her fault or anything like you know she could have been at a slightly lower weight or you know it could have been later in the season with a couple kills under her belt whatever i don't know but i just remember thinking that like dang it my old trusty <laughs> like she didn't she didn't do it i thought she was gonna do it and uh so I think we've talked about the drama with her wing in the past. Uh-huh. At this point, where is that at? So after that initial thing where the um, that trauma to her left wing, uh, that first molt, she dropped those four feathers in a clump, mm-hmm. like kind of glued together. And then forever after that, 
only grew back two of those four. So forever she was minus two on one side. And the the leading two. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Does you think that impacted her much? Maybe in level flight. However, I'm now the thing is Huns are a little bit easier to intimidate. Um and I do believe well, I saw her fly him down in level flight, but mostly I think she just like intimidated him. You know, if you if you fly him long enough, like they're gonna give up. It seems mm-hmm. like Huns have kind of like a I don't know, four hundred yard range, uh, before they peter out. And um so yeah, maybe in level flight, maybe that played into why she climbed the way she did, because she would go downwind and ring and ring and ring and ring and then get to a decent pitch and then come straight into the wind and then just be at pitch when she got to you most of the time. Mm. Um, And I don't know. I don't know if it ever played a factor. I asked people who saw her fly if they felt like they could tell, and they said no. But, um, and I never saw her next to or recently after another prairie falcon you know like mm-hmm. i saw jer peregrine's fly shortly after her and like there's a big difference between oh, yeah. a prairie falcon and a jer peregrine or even a peregrine yeah and they eat up the sky man mm-hmm. they do um i do feel like i can tell a difference between her and my current prairie falcon who is you know fully feathered and a big flyer and um but no, I didn't notice a, a difference. That's good. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's fine. I just couldn't remember if she where she was at with that. Yeah, she was just minus two on, on one side. Um so I called her down and uh then flew her a couple more times. Then uh on I was on my way down to Thanksgiving with my girlfriend at the time. And uh, on the way back from that, we stopped and flew her, not on a slip, just to get her out and get her some exercise. And she did what she always did. She went downwind, out of sight, came back at 1,000 feet. And um, I let my girlfriend toss a pigeon. And I would uh, I would toss pigeons. Um, and this might be where, like, that uh, handicap of having minus two feathers came into play. But I would use pigeons for training um, be, a lot of times because they would get away uh, if you didn't, you know, impair them in any way. And uh, she would give up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Like on a pigeon, she would stoop it, maybe stoop it another time. And then once it started climbing, she would just remount and leave the pigeon alone. Like she'd just start remounting hmm. for another shot like because she knew I would produce another opportunity. And, um, so I, I let my girlfriend toss a pigeon and she stooped at it and chased it and put it into cover and then, um, remount, started to remount and I called her down. And then, um, I believe it was December 8th, uh, I was flying, uh, with my dad. We were kind of co-flying her, you know, at the time. And, um, he was with me and we turned her loose and, uh, this was at our old training field and she liked to go over to this one hill 
and use the updraft off of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and use that to climb, and then she'd come over. So she went over to her favorite hill back where, and this is the original training field. This is where I had her when I first got her. Um, and she came overhead, and my dad had the pigeon, and he was, like, wanting to uh, throw it. And she was at, like, 800 feet or something, you know, and I was like, nah, just wait. <laughs> I was, you know, because he had seen her fly, but he hadn't seen, he'd seen her fly in a lot of wind when she went up respectively high and chased some huns, and he saw her knock down a couple of sharp tails, but he had not seen her really go high and do what she could do. Right. And so I was wanting to show off. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, said, no, wait. And she, you know, made another ring, came back probably 900 and I let her make a few more rings, and she was just dead overhead or just slightly upwind, just, you know. And this was a um, clear, not a cloud in the sky day, blue day with snow on the ground. And um, finally, you know, I said, okay, fine, and threw the pigeon and the pigeon, you know, was getting its bearings, making a couple laps before deciding to make a move. And she was st- coming down. She disappeared at first, you know, because when they fold up and they're that high, they just kind of disappear. And because she was slightly upwind and the pigeon was slightly downwind, it looked like she was coming straight at us. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And... um she, you know, got closer and closer and you could hear her coming down and, you know, you could see her dropping her feet down and kind of making adjustments, you know, and flexing her wings, making little micro adjustments as she's coming down. And uh, it got to the point where, like, my dad and I both, like, ducked because, <laughs> like, it really looked like she was coming right for us and it was because the pigeon was slightly behind us. And um, she came down and she actually hit it and she doesn't, she didn't normally hit him, you know, usually a good, uh, homing pigeon will make your falcon look foolish, and this was kind of a younger pigeon, um, from our flock, but I still didn't expect her to even touch it, and, uh, but she did tap it, and, um, threw up, and then she must have, you know, knocked it just enough to discombobulate it, because then when she came back, she was able to pop it pretty good, and then it went to the ground, and so then she did a wing over and came down to grab it on the ground, and it, like, sidestepped her, mm-hmm. and she landed on the ground, and then it took off, and she took off, and, you know, it did just like pigeons do it rapidly, started climbing, and she knew she couldn't keep up with it, so she broke off and started to remount, and my dad... Um, started to get the lure out to call her down, and I, what? Nothing. Oh, and I, uh, my dad got the lure out and started to call her down, and like, I kick myself now for not letting him, but again, I wanted to show off, and I said, no, 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 I want her to at least think that she's gonna remount, you know, because that's that's how I train birds to remount is like I try not to do anything if they're sitting 
you know, mm-hmm. and if they start to climb in the initial stages, then I call them down. And then each time I just wait a little longer before calling them down. So I'm like, no, no, no. I want her to at least think that she's going to remount so that I reward the behavior that I want. Right. And, um, so she starts to remount and the pigeon, you know, flies out of our periphery and we just think it's gone. And then she kind of starts heading into the wind and climbing, which isn't her typical MO for climbing, but whatever. And that was another like red flag where I feel like I should have known something was up, you know, or done something about it. Cause I could break her off of stuff if I wanted to, um, like I could blow the whistle and she would break off. And, um, then she gets out there a ways and she's still climbing, but just flying in a straight line into the wind. And, uh, I see the pigeon out on the horizon flying left to right. And she's kind of flying right to left. I'm like, what is that pigeon doing? Does it not see her up there? And apparently it didn't because it flew under her and she folded up and stooped. And then they got in, you know, close to the ground and I like lost them in the brown and snow and all that. Um, cause it wasn't total snow cover. And, uh, so I'm like, gosh, you know, crap. Okay. Dad, go get the truck and I'm going to start running that way. And there's a river we're flying in a river bottom there's a river with a levee and i thought that i saw her go behind the levee after the pigeon and so what i needed to do was head for the levee and make sure that she did cross the river and you know because i gotta go out and around to find a bridge to cross the river and um so we head for the river and the signal's coming back the other way and so we're like, okay, good. So she's still in the field somewhere, and I'm still swinging the lure and no sign of her, which is surprising because I really, again, I never expected her to catch pigeons that I threw unless I made sure she was going to catch them. Mm-hmm. And um, she, uh, so I saw this red tail sitting in a tree, and, you know, that was like on my mind. Thought, hmm, I hope you know it doesn't see her or she's not on the ground somewhere or whatever and so then we hop back in the truck and head towards the signal and then it seems like the signal is coming from this drainage ditch in the middle of a plowed field and so I go walking over there and I'm walking along the ditch and I'm like well heck it seems like she's in this ditch somewhere and then on the banks of the ditch, there's a equisetum grass or whatever that's called. Do you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Yeah, horsetail, horse, I think. Horsetail, yep. That's what's on the banks, real thick, rushy stuff. And uh, so you can't really see the bottom of the ditch, and there's water in the bottom of it. And uh, I kind of peek over the edge of the ditch, and a red tail comes flying out. And I'll never forget that red tail because you know I've never had particularly negative feelings about red tails or like thought they were ugly but if there was ever a red tail to be like the villain of a movie like this was it it was the just the fadedest rattiest yuckiest old nasty haggard red tail you've ever seen yeah um 
and I still just it didn't click. I thought, nah, like she's a passage bird. She wouldn't, nah. She didn't catch the pigeon for one, and B, she wouldn't let herself get caught by a red tail. She knows that stuff. And uh, so I keep walking, and sure enough, the signal points back that direction. And I look down in right there at my feet in the equisitum, and there's the pigeon alive, hiding in the equisitum. So I'm like, well, that's odd. And uh, it just started to come together, like what maybe happened. And then I like step down into the ditch, and I look down the ditch, and there's a little brown lump on the bank. And then it finally like starts to sink in, you know, like what what's happened, and it's not moving. And and I just knew she was dead. Like, I, you know, I just felt like, I just knew, you know. I mean, I I didn't go running up there because somehow I just knew, like, there's no way she's alive. She's dead. If she was alive, she'd be moving or something. I don't know. I just knew that she was dead as a doornail. And I just, like, kind of sat on my butt and threw my telemetry up onto the bank and took my hat off and just kind of put my head in my hands and just started crying like a baby. And uh, just, you know, couldn't catch my breath, just sobbing. And my dad rolled up in the truck and got out. And he, you know, he maybe said something like, what's going on or whatever. <laughs> and uh, he came down onto the bank and he looked down the ditch and he saw and he said oh no and uh, he put his hand on my back and uh, and then he went down the ditch and uh, her tail feather with her microtransmitter was floating in the water and she still had her leg mount on and he picked her up and grabbed her tail feather and uh, put her in his coat and came over and then we went back to the truck and uh, put her in the back and um, and we got in the car and I mean I was just crying and felt a lot of things um, honestly like probably the heart like the worst part in that moment was like that I lost my hunting buddy like I'm not gonna get to hunt with Selena anymore like it's my buddy you know uh she's a special bird man yeah um and uh so we got in the car and I feel like my dad knew that I was just gonna go up in my room and I don't know maybe crawl up under my mattress and cry all day so he was like do you want to go trapping and uh it's like yeah I guess you know so we went home and I just kind of for the next couple days just kind of cried off and on um I remember I, I think I texted you because uh -huh. I like getting updates on Selena uh -huh. too you know I feel like I had an investment in her and you know she was 
big part of our friendship, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, I, you know, I usually say, Hey, you had to go tonight or whatever. Uh-huh. And I don't remember if you called me or texted me uh-huh. that she was dead uh-huh. and I lost it too. <laughs> really? Yeah. I think yeah. you, I think I texted you or maybe texted you and then you called me cause you didn't, you thought I was pulling your leg or something. Yeah. Well, I I made sure you were all right, and then went home and cried. <laughs> yeah, and told Devin I was like, "This, she's gone." Yeah. Um. So you guys went trapping. We did. Um. And then it it, the feelings kind of developed into like feeling bad, you know, like I wasn't there because I felt like she definitely had some kind of understanding about like safety and security with me. And and I felt really bad about that, because um, I felt like she, when she needed me the most, you know, I wasn't there and all that stuff. Um, so that's like kind of what made me cry later on. Um, but I'm glad that my dad took me trapping, um, because I feel like with falconry, you get you you bring about your own destruction sometimes and sometimes you get dealt crappy hands it's just luck of the draw whatever um and it can be easy to to not want to get back on the wagon you know um but the I don't know I'm glad I did so we went trapping and uh this is in, you know, like Missouri, um, and we go out to our usual route, and we're driving along, and I look over, and there goes a prairie falcon, like one of the first birds we see, it's a prairie falcon flying away, and it flies maybe three quarters of a mile out and lands in the top of this tree, and the only way you know it's there is with the spotting scope, you can see the dot in the tree. And so we're like, well, let's try to catch it. So we uh, go, and there's a big snow drift, which is perfect to put your dogaza in. So I get out my snow net and my pigeon and stake it out. And then we just back up like 50 yards and are watching through the spotting scope. It's, it's perfect because you got that, that white backdrop so the pigeon shows real well. Right. Gotcha. Perfect for that. Plus the snow is sturdy enough because it's drifted that you can stick dogaza poles into it. Okay. But it's, they're going to come right out when the bird hits the net. Gotcha. So you don't have to worry about, like, it being too hard of a stop. Gotcha. Um, so that pigeon just, like, flicked its wing once, and the bird dropped down out of the tree. And we could tell it was on its way, but it was such a long ways that it took, you know, several seconds before, like, you even saw her again. Yeah. So you're like, oh, she's still coming, you know? And uh, then we picked her up, coming, cooking along the ground, and she went over the pigeon, threw up, and then on the next pass, hit the net right in front of us. And so we go racing up there in the car, and I, like, walked out to the net, and I didn't hustle, <laughs> you know? Normally I hustle out to the net, and... uh I wasn't even sure if I wanted to catch it or wanted, you know, wanted it to be a passage bird that I would end up keeping, you know, because um, I still had a 
pretty bad taste in my mouth. And uh, so I, you know, rolled her over, and it's a big old female passage prairie, <laughs> like an hour after Selena was killed. And so we were like, <laughs> okay. So I brought her home, hooded her up, called the conservation agent, got a band. And then my dad started her that season, got her going on the kite. And she's the bird that I have now. So we're going into our uh, third season. Talking about getting back up on the horse. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think the horse got under me. Yeah. Whether I wanted it or not. So, and she's been a good one. She was very easy to get along with as far as prairies go. She's still a prairie, but, um, yeah, looking forward to this year. I feel like we got some things. She's definitely starting to, uh, understand what we're doing, what mm-hmm. we're out there to do, you know, and, um, we're working as a team now. And so we were starting to work as a team there. Um, you know, it's like sometimes the bird goes up and you, and you catch whatever you're trying to catch, um, in spite of everything, (laughs) like the bird was up plenty high or whatever and out of position, but just happened. Like, you don't really feel like they're with you, you know, she's out doing her own thing, which is spectacular, but she's not really like with me, Mm -hmm. you know, and I only reclaim her because I flushed something. And, uh, towards the end though, it was getting to where like she would see where I was headed and head me off and meet me there, you know, and stuff like that. So like, um, that's what I mean when I say we were starting to work together. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to this, this coming season and hoping we can do some more flying together than we did this past year. We got to some, but Mm -hmm. I didn't get to see you fly any chickens and you didn't get to come out at all on any of the catches this year for Mm-mm. bolt no and now that i've uh lowered my standards and started hawking <laughs> ducks uh maybe we can hawk together more like i'll come down there and and uh, hawk ducks with you and stuff and you always got a place to stay yeah yeah so any closing remarks or anything uh I wish I could have her back. <laughs> I wish we had 10 more like her. Yeah. Yeah. She was a good one. That she was. Well, thanks for listening, and happy hawking. <laughs> <laughs>